You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Well, welcome back, folks. We're here for another podcast of Two Bald Biologists. Ben, how's it been going lately? It's been going great. It's been a little too long since we've done one of these, but... It seems like it's been a little while for sure, so we might be out of practice, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah, bear with us. Yeah, but once again, welcome back, and we've been just really floored by all the responses we've gotten from you folks out in listening land. We get tons and tons of emails every time we get a podcast go out, and Ben is much better at responding than I am, and that's because Ben gets the emails first, and so he jumps and cuts me off. Yeah, a lot of great emails, a lot of good interest. There was one guy who's, I think he wrote me an email in German. I regret that I could not respond back to yours. We might be able to get it translated. See what we can do. But if, just for all the other listeners out there. We speak English. I would I would prefer <laughs> English is the medium. To English is hard enough for us. So. <laughs> yeah, barely got that one figured out. Yeah, we barely got that one figured out. Well, today we're going to talk about pond management. We get a lot of questions about pond management. Our biologists get a lot of questions weekly about pond management in North Carolina. And today we took a field trip and came basically to the Sand Hills, to the heart of North Carolina. We're joined by a very special guest, Commissioner John Stone. Hello, Commissioner Stone. Hello. John, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I've been on the commission for seven or eight years now. I find it very interesting. I find all the reports I get from the fisheries biologists at the commission meetings to be very interesting. You know, everybody geeks out about something, and this is what I geek out about. Fisheries management and fishing in general. I like to hunt, too. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, we can geek out about fish for sure on this podcast. We've done it multiple times. So I think every you're, time. You're in the right yeah. place. Good. Uh, welcome. But welcome. yeah, let people know what the commissioners do. We have 19 commissioners that are on our board, and they basically set all the rules and regulations and oversee what the Wildlife Commission does on a daily basis. They're appointed by basically politicians throughout the state mm-hmm. of North Carolina, both the governor the and the legislature. And I will say, having now been an assistant chief of fisheries, I get to know the commissioners a lot better now and more on a one-on-one basis. And all of them are very passionate about our outdoors and about hunting and fishing in North Carolina. Commissioner Stone is our chairman of our fisheries committee for our commission. He's very passionate about fishing. We've talked about fishing all day as we've been on his property and fished some of his ponds and learned about pond management with him. And But he fishes all over the place. He liked to trout fish in the mountains and Yep. And smallmouth bass fish and all kinds of things. I love smallmouth bass fish. I'm already looking forward to your podcast next year when you do that show. Yeah, yeah. I had never really smallmouth bass fished until probably the last three or four years and taking several trips doing smallmouth bass stuff. And they are a blast to catch yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They have no give up. That's what I tell people. Like they don't want to give up. When they're coming towards the boat or coming towards the shore, they do not want to stop fighting. And they're pretty willing takers on the fly rod too. Yep. Makes it fun. Yeah. Very aggressive as far as bass go. Yeah, they're aggressive. Yeah. Them and spotted bass, they're really aggressive fish for sure. Yeah, but I do a lot of fishing and I do try to travel around, fish different parts 
of the country. But the nice thing about a farm pond is it's in your backyard. That's right. So you get home from work and you look out the window and see some nervous water, grab your rod and head down and fish for an hour or two. Yeah. So, John, if you don't mind telling me, just in your opinion, and, and maybe we'll go around the table and each person gets a try, but why are ponds so interesting to you? Well, you know, the great thing about ponds is most of them aren't real large. So I used to think I wanted to have like a 20-acre pond, but I don't. I have several smaller ponds, but they're small enough where you have a lot of control over the environment. Yeah, you can stock them with what you want. You can lime and fertilize and manage it just as intensely or as casually as you want to. You know, you don't have to be a good fisherman if you're a good pond manager. You know, you get enough fish in there, you're going to catch them. Just depends on how much you want to put in resources. When we were riding around today, I didn't plant my dove field this year because I couldn't get the guy to plant it. I've never done great with sunflowers, but I think about how much money I spend on all that. And I'd rather just put that in my pond where I know I can get results and I can enjoy it later on. You know what I just heard? Fish are better. That's what I heard. Fish are better. Fish are better than sunflowers. Than sunflowers or doves. But, you know, I'll probably get hate mail over that. We're about to get a bunch of... Well, the season lasts a lot longer. And the season a lot longer. You can fish fish around. Yeah. Most people hunt doves for about a week or so. Yeah. A day. (laughs) Most people hunt doves for a day. If you have dove complaints, please send them to Corey Oakley. (laughs) Yeah. Don't send them to two ball ball. Just bend over to one to answer it. So for me, both my granddaddies have ponds. And so I grew up, you know, when I went to see my grandparents, I'd fish the pond. And to be honest, as a kid, why I wanted to see my grandparents was so I could go fish the pond. And so I really cut my teeth as an angler and really first learned how to fish on my own by fishing ponds. And so for me, it's a very nostalgic thing when I'm working on a pond or fishing on a pond now. It just kind of takes me back to my childhood. The other thing is I did a lot of work on doing technical guidance for pond owners as a fish biologist fresh out of college. So I've seen and done a lot of stuff with ponds. And kind of like Commissioner Stone said, they're fairly easy to manipulate. It's a lot easier to manipulate a pond than it is a 100,000-acre lake, you know, with a lot of different variables at play. So with fewer variables, you can really force it. But really, I think why they're so interesting to me is it goes back to my childhood and how I want to help people you know, when a guy calls me about his pond, he's like, yeah, I'm just trying to get my grandkids to have some fish to catch. I'm like, okay, what can I do to help you? So it really, it hits a chord with me for sure. Yeah, for me, I grew up on the coastal plain where we don't have ponds, where we don't have very many of them, unless they dug a highway out and there's a pond because they used the dirt for a highway. So I really didn't get into pond management until I came into the Piedmont and went to school at NC State and basically learned from a professor there, his name was Rich Noble, who just knew everything in and out about a pond and about fish management in a pond. And so I learned a lot there. And what's great about it from a fish biologist perspective is that you can basically manipulate it, change it, do different things, grow different fish. It doesn't have to be, you can make it whatever you want to make it. It's an experiment. And from a biologist perspective, that's the cool thing about it. Like, you know, I can tell you to do so. You said this earlier today, Ben, while we were fishing. I can tell you to do something on your pond, and a year and a half from now, it's probably going to be right. Yeah. Whereas when we manipulate something in the wild, like at a reservoir or river, it might be 10 years before we see it turn around because you just don't have that kind of control that you do in a pond setting. And so for me, that's what's so interesting about pond management. 
Well, and like John said, these ponds are relatively small. Yep. And so if you do make the wrong decision, you can start over. Train one to start over relatively <laughs> easily. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the neat things. It's like you haven't lost but so much if you decide, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start over with this pond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's just say we have a blank canvas basically saying the pond is brand new. You just dug it, you just built it, it just got water in it. What do you do? Ben. As far as stocking goes? Yeah, what do you do? Do you start with stocking or do you do something else first? So if you have a brand new pond, let's just say you, this pond pops into existence in your backyard. You have a pond. Sometimes that happens. It's full of water. <laughs> pond fairy comes by. The pond fairy drops comes a, by. Drops a pond in your backyard. It really just depends on what your goals are and what you want. It's no different than a field or a yard or anything. You have to decide what you want if you're going to manage it accordingly. Most people want one of three things out of their pond as far as fishing goes. Some people just want a pretty pond. If that's the case, they just want to look at water. Put a water fountain out there. Don't worry about any fish and enjoy your scenic. There's no reason to have fish if you don't want to fish for them. That's right. So, yeah, some people just want a pretty pond or want to know that there's fish in it, but don't really want to fish it. Buy some fish, toss them in, and walk away from it and enjoy it. You know, yeah. Other people want a pond. John's right there with him. He wants a pond. Has an idea in the back of his head when it gets going, right? Yeah. So I'll have guys that'll come and fish with me, and we'll go out and have a good day. And they'll say, "My pond just doesn't fish as good as yours." And I'll say, "Well, how are you managing it?" And they don't manage it. You know, they would treat it like they do their deer food plots and give it as much attention as they do that, and they'd have a lot of fish, but. I think it's a pretty rare pond where that just happens, where the pond fairy gives you a bunch of fish when they give you the pond. Right. You know, usually the fish you have. Pond to... fairy rarely delivers 10-pound bass and 2-pound I have not met that pond fairy. Right. Now, interestingly enough, the pond fairy did give me that blank canvas that you're talking about. Hurricane Ian came through, dumped a bunch of water. My aerators went out when the power went out. So, huge fish kill. So, that pretty much is a do-over there. So, I'd be interested. You've seen that pond. To see, I've got an idea of what I'm going to do there, but I'd be interested to hear what you guys think I should do as far as stocking. So there's many, let's say we're going to stock a pond. There's a lot of different avenues to take, but probably one of the textbook recipes is going to be go with bluegills, largemouth bass, and that ratio. You can put catfish in a pond. A lot of people think you need catfish in a pond. You don't need them. There's no biological need for catfish. The reason to put catfish in your pond is because you would like to catch catfish. And if you would like to catch catfish, then you had better put them in your pond. (laughs) That's how that works. Once again, the magic fairy doesn't bring those either. Right. But you can maintain a very healthy pond with just bass and brim. And normally the brim are going to be about a 70-30 or 80-20 split between bluegills and shellcrackers. There's other recipes. There's other ways to go. There's other options. And technology is getting crazy now. You can go with all-female bass. You can go different routes. You can stock all sorts of different forage. But really, the textbook kind of tried and true is going to be a bass brim pond. And is if you manage it accordingly, it should provide you quality fishing for the foreseeable future. So, Ben... So you said it's 70, 30, 80, 20, which I've told people that for years. 
But how many fish per acre? Like if you're doing fingerlings, because those are going to be your cheaper fish, you can afford those compared right. to buying something much bigger. So if you're looking at sunfish, you're looking at bluegills and red ears, what is it per acre that you would put in the pond? So, and we'll get into fertilized versus non-fertilized pond later, but really it's about 500 brim per acre. Again, the split should be mostly bluegills or even all bluegills. And then you can also put some red ears in the mix. The reason why you want all bluegills or mostly bluegills is because bluegills spawn more times a year than the other sunfish can. So bluegills will spawn just about monthly during the growing season. Which is, as a kid growing up, fishing for sunfish, if people will think back to those days, I think back to those days as a kid, red ears basically spawned one time a year, usually in April or May. And once they were done, they were done, and they were off the beds, and they were gone. But bluegills are there basically throughout the warm water season on bed spawning. Yeah, so red ears is the red top clover. Once the red top clover is gone. That's exactly right. That's good. We always said it was when the dogwoods bloomed, and that's about the same time. And then the bass, again, the brim are going to be about 500 per acre, and the bass are going to be about 50 per acre. Now, that's with standard... Everyday bass. If you're going to go all female or if you're going to stock, there's also, I've got a buddy in Alabama that's doing some work stocking just productive acreage. So a lot lesser stocking rate of bass, a lot of different options you can go. But if you're talking about the, just the tried and true standard, that's your cookbook recipe. Now, if you want to do something else, my recommendation is you get on the phone and you call your fish biologist and you say, here's what I'm thinking about. We give out the best and the cheapest information. It's free. Yes, it's free. And we don't get paid any more or less based on what our recommendations are. So we're not trying to sell you fish or anything like that. So call us. We'll make some recommendations. We'll make recommendations on who in North Carolina to get fish from. And we'll give you the cookbook recipe of tell them you want 500 bass or 500 brim and 50 bass for your one acre pond or something like that. We're happy to do that. So. And it's a lot easier for us as biologists to take you from the start and keep you on the right note than it is for you to call us halfway through and say, well, I've got this pond and it's got X, Y, and Z issues. It's a lot harder for us to fix those. Yeah. It's a lot easier for us to say, here's the path, follow the path. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's what we're here for. It's a big part of what we do is we try to help folks have good ponds, have good opportunity. And we're happy to do it. So, John, you mentioned that pond that had the fish kill. And we'll come back to the fish kill problem in a minute. But say it's the blank canvas, and we've both seen that pond. What, In your mind, what is it that you are trying to do? Where do you want to go next with that pond? Say there's nothing in it. Where do you want to go next? Yeah, so I'm going to try to get it back to what it was, pretty much. So tell people yeah. what it was yeah. before. So my vision for that pond was for it to be a big bluegill pond. And it turned into a big bass pond, which is not a bad runner. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. I would have drained it in big bass. I, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd have fished it first, but then we could have <laughs> drained it and tried to make big bluegills yeah. out of it. So, you know, once it became a big bass pond, it's like, well, this is cool. So I sort of managed it with that in mind. The mistake I made was when I, well, let me tell you what I did originally. I stocked it with fathead minnows and, um, put a ton of fathead minnows in there and waited almost a year before I put the bluegill in. And a guy told me to put the fathead minnows in, and when there are so many minnows in there that you can walk across the pond and not get wet, 
then you can sock your bluegill in your bass. <laughs> so I put the bluegill in. They had a spawn. And then I added the bass. And the bass were amazing in that they wiped out tens of thousands of fathead minnows in just a matter of a few months. You would see them going around like a wolf pack and schooling them up against the bank and feeding on them. That's so, what they do. So once the fathead minnows were gone, they were gone. You know, they're not oh, like yeah. the mosquito fish that you see everywhere. But it got a, a great jump start on the bass. And we put some shellcrackers in there also. But I made the mistake putting the channel cats in because I feel like they were an apex predator with the bass and they were competing with the bass. Oh, yeah, for sure. So this time around, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the catfish out and I'm going to try to do just what you said, the quintessential North Carolina Piedmont bass bluegill pond. And I like fingerlets. I know we've, yeah. we've yeah. made recommendations in the past about stocking adult fish and that kind of thing, but it seems to me that stocking with fink one is cheaper. By Very much significant, so. Significantly cheaper. But it seems to give you a better ratio when you're talking about larger numbers and let it soak. But one thing I want to talk about when you talk about stocking that I think is really important is the timing of your stocking. And, and John kind of hinted at and that he put some in first and then waited because your strategy shouldn't be that my bass are going to feed on the fish that I stock. Your strategy mm-hmm. is the bass should feed on the offspring That's of right. the fish that I stock. You got to give them time. So some people are waiting. I would say recommended at least six months. Mm-hmm. Some people are waiting a year or two. They're stocking brim and letting them soak for at least a year. And again, it depends on when you're stocking. If you're stocking right now, you probably are not going to stock your bass until about right now. But if you stock, let's say in April, stock your sunfish in April, by about right now, you could stock bass and there would be plenty of food in there because those brim are going to, it's amazing how small those first brim beds you see are. I mean, there's the size of like coffee saucers. Oh, yeah. And then as the brim get bigger, the beds get bigger. Kind of like how I grew up. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. We've both gotten large. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. So when the die off happened, did you see catfish die too? Did catfish come to the surface? So, you know, it was a big catfish that was uh, my first indication that I had a problem. So I was mm-hmm. riding around the pond ATV and I saw a big channel catfish. I had to stop to talk to him, check him out. And it was very lethargic. And I said, you know, that fish is stressed. And then I started looking around and there were dead bluegill on the bottom. And I said, uh-oh. A couple of days later, everything started floating to the top. You know, it had to have been the hurricane. Between the water that got dumped, the wind, and my aerators losing power. So I was hoping, you know, I've always heard, maybe you can tell me if this is true, that when you have a fish kill from a turnover like that, it affects the biggest fish first. It does. They have a higher oxygen demand. So I was seeing big bass, big bluegill, which was a heartbreaker, but... I said, well, you know, my small fish will survive. And then I started seeing small bluegill, small bass. And, you know, catfish are pretty tough, and they went belly up. So I think I literally have one fish in there at this point. So did you see any fish, like, alive, but, like, right on the surface or right on the bank? No. Okay, because sometimes that happens, and those fish are really just at that water-air interface there's a little bit more oxygen. You know, I think the catfish may have actually been doing that because I've never seen one shallow there. That's what got my attention. Right. Was, what's he doing over here? But I was out of town when all that happened, so I think they were dead by the time I got. And just so you know, 
if you own a pond and you're managing your pond, eventually, we talked about the fish fairy. Well, eventually the fish kill fairy comes to you as well. And it happens. It happens. Some ponds, it's a more chronic issues than others, and it depends on how it happens. But eventually, it seems like it chases us all down at some point. And it even happens through storms in some of our public waters as well. So Yeah, when I was working in District 5 as a biologist, that was the most common pond call I got was, and it was usually September, October. Basically, to give you a, a rundown of limnology, which is a fancy word for how ponds and lakes set up over time and how it all works. It's all water issues that are involved in that. But anyway, they get stratified. These ponds get stratified, particularly in the Piedmont, they get stratified, which means there's hot water at the top, cold water at the bottom. And it stays that way throughout the summer. It stays these layers of water. And everybody, we've talked about this on the podcast before, you know it, if you go in your pond, you know it because it's hot at the top and your feet are cold. Feet are cold. And so that's what's happening. And that cold water, as time goes on, gets less and less oxygen in the water. And then what really happens and causes these fish kills is you get a hard rain, like a hurricane, and that rain rushes into your pond and it's cold too. And it makes this stirring or mixing happen and makes that cold anoxic water, basically, which anoxic means no oxygen, water rise. And when it does, it suffocates the fish. And sometimes it happens in pockets in a pond. And so fish can move out of those pockets and get away from it. And you won't have a massive fish kill. And sometimes it wipes the entire pond out like it's happened to you, John. You know, just wipes the whole pond out. and There's really nothing you can do at that point. It normally doesn't happen in, say, large ponds. Like no. seven to 10 acres, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. If you're three acres and less, it could probably happen. Yeah. And like you said, you know, I had landowners in District 5. It was like every two to three years, they would lose their pond because their pond was just set up perfect for it. And so some ponds are more susceptible to it than others. And you'll find that out as you go along, you know, that some ponds will do it a lot quicker. So that pond, you know, I had two aerators running in it because it was, I knew it was sort of artificial situation. It was deep. There were a lot of fish in there, so we were aerating, trying to keep the water from stratifying. My wife said, you know, maybe we need to put that on the generator or get a backup battery or something. My initial reaction was, I don't know it. We don't have to go through all that work for all that trouble for the pond. It doesn't happen all that often, but I showed you the pictures of the dead fish. Oh, yeah. There's thousands of dollars worth of fish in that <laughs> pond that I lost, so maybe a backup battery <laughs> yeah. would, would be a prudent investment. So. Yeah. So, and what happens most of the time when these fish kills happen, it normally happens at night and you wake up in the morning and you see a bunch of white bellies yeah. and you think that it's, you know, it looks awful. It looks terrible. And it is, you know. I and mean, it can I'm, smell terrible. The only people that enjoy it are not people. They're raccoons and buzzards and coyotes mm. and other scavengers. Yeah. But to be honest, rarely ever is it a complete and total fish kill. So what I tell folks a lot of times when they have it is wait about six months and see what happens. See what you see. Then you can make a judgment call about what you need to do. Because a lot of times these fish, it's just like Jurassic Park. Sometimes Mother Nature finds a way and there's always a few fish that eke it out. And sometimes... it's more than just a few fish that eke it out. There's a pocket in there that you didn't know about that had decent water or whatever, and it, it's not a complete kill. 
Well, it's just like what we talked about on the previous podcast with catfish. You know, we talked about the fish kill that was in Contentney Creek. Everybody thinks, oh, everything's gone. Well, no, if you just give it time, you'll be surprised that there are fish that survived it and will reproduce and do the same things over again and replenish your pond. So, I mean, you can always jumpstart it. Your pond in particular, you can jumpstart it if you want to by going back and stocking stuff. But you got to be careful about that, too, if there's a lot of fish left over. Right. Yeah, you don't want to stock fish on top of fish in most instances because, I mean, fish are an investment that you have to make, but they're a lot bigger of an investment if they're fish feed for the fish that are in your pond. At that point, it's like, you know, buying Snicker bars. For yeah, if, if you got 14-inch bass running around and you go buy two-inch bass and dump them in the pond, you just fed your 14-inch bass two-inch bass. Right. And that's why I like the fathead minnows. I feel like they're easier for the bass to catch. So they'll feed on them, give the bluegill some relief for yeah. a period of time. And a lot of people recommend fathead minnows, and there's nothing, I, I don't think they really cause any real problems in, as far as pond management goes. But in all honesty, blue, I've got a 10-and-a-half-pound bass and an 11-pound bass on my wall that came out of a straight bass brim pond. And yeah. so they can, again, to me, it's every time I add a species, I relinquish a little bit of control. And so... By keeping it simple, I can keep my thumbs on things really well. You know, again, all your fad minnows are going to do, they're going to, as you said, John, they're going to get gobbled up. And so if you need the bass to have a little bit of food, maybe it's not a bad plan, especially getting that jump start like you did first thing out of the gate. But I also talked to pond owners that are putting fathead minnows in their pond annually. And again, if your brim are healthy, they should be able to support the bass otherwise. Let me ask you this, because when you think of fathead minnows, I think of mosquito fish. Mosquito fish, will they prey on the eggs? Not to my knowledge. So that's not a problem? No. Good. No, in fact, you know if you have bass in a pond or not based on the number of mosquito fish you see and how those mosquito fish are behaving. If those mosquito fish are swimming way out off the banks, there's no bass there. Hmm. If there's just a few mosquito fish and they're staying tight to the cover and tight to the shoreline, that's probably a sign that there's bass around. Fish act differently when there's no predator around versus when there is. That's interesting. So, let's talk for a minute. We talked about species and how to stock and kind of the cookbook recipe. But John, you've got some interesting stuff going on. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? And maybe I'll talk about kind of from the textbook side of things. You live right here near your pond, so you're able to dote on them a lot more than and really intensely manage them than, say, somebody who's got a pond on his hunting land or something like that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about some of the different things you've tried. And then there's definitely some things that I want to talk about that are no-goes. So No, I like that word. I do dote on my ponds. I used to dote on my children, but they moved away, so now I dote <laughs> on my ponds. Got to dote on something. Got to dote on You got to geek out on something. That's right. So some of the ponds... Don't have a, a lot of flow. There's, you know, it's just whatever rain off, a rain runoff they get. And those ponds, the first thing I do is lime them, just like agricultural fish. You get more bang for your buck out of lime. And, and then we look at fertilizing. The big pond, which had that real robust stream going through it, I don't bother to lime or fertilize it because there's such a turnover of water. I just don't think it would, you know, be beneficial. I don't think it would keep the fertilization in there. The biggest thing is, you know, occasionally you need to take some fish out. And when it comes to bass, that's sort of a sin for a lot of people. But if you want to manage for big bass, you can't have a bunch of bass. I haven't been able to have a pond that had a lot of bass 
and everybody likes to catch two and three pound bass and had a lot of big bass. So it right. seems like you have to go in one direction or the other. But we've experimented with some of them. I have an old bluegill pond. Much to my surprise, they have not stunned it. You know, you think you'd have a thousand little bluegill in there. We didn't fish that one today. That was the one up on top of the hill. But, you know, they're all healthy, big, nice bluegill. We have some hybrid bluegill ponds, which are kind of neat just because of the hybridization. You get that hybrid bigger, and, and they seem to be more aggressive. But, you know, as we saw today, a lot of them had a cross-backed green sunfish. So I need to do some management of that pond. The one thing I haven't done is like a pure catfish pond. Like if you want to feed, you want to take catfish out, consume two or three pounds. I know guys that do that. I just haven't gone in that direction. So one of the interesting things, and John's had it, we've seen it. He's showed it to us. He's got an all bluegill pond right now. And normally that's not something we would recommend, no. right, Corey? No. And that's the cool thing about ponds is you can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter if we recommend it or not. Yeah, you can you tell know. us, stick it in our ear. It's your pond. It's your pond. You make it whatever you want. We're just giving be. you advice. And our advice is based on kind of the average. There's always an anomaly. There's always an outlier. There's always a guy who can say, well, well, I had a pond and I did it this way and it worked out. And I don't argue with those folks because there's always an exception to every rule for sure. But normally you would need a predator to keep those brim. You know, John mentioned that we're surprised that they're not stunted out. Or you'd have to harvest it a lot right. yourself. Mm -hmm. Intense harvest, a lot of harvest. And I'm going to talk about harvesting a little bit. Also, I wanted to talk a little bit about the hybrid brim because they're neat, but they're not the right tool in every situation. No. John talked a little bit about how they can grow and they can get relatively large for a brim, you know, two pounds, four pounds, somewhere in that neighborhood on the top end. So ridiculously big. My granddaddy had them in his pond and we would catch them on seven inch lizards, if that tells you anything. That's awesome. You know, you have a good bluegill when you can lip them like a bass. Right. That's right. But what they are typically is a cross between a, a green sunfish and a bluegill. There are some red ear hybrids out there that are available nowadays too. But typically, they're not the best choice for a pond unless it's a relatively small pond that you can drain. Because once they do start to back cross, they regress back to a green sunfish more times than not. Again, I talked earlier about what's going to produce quality fishing over the long, long haul. The hybrid sunfish pond will be fun for a while, but eventually you're going to have to tend to it in a different way. So, again, it's not a problem. It's just you have to know what you're getting yourself into when you're going down that road. Another thing I wanted to talk about is crappie. Corey, what do you think about crappie? Other than they're delicious when we catch they're, them in the reservoirs. Well, they're delicious to eat, but they are probably the toughest species, in my opinion, to manage in a pond. If I was giving advice to a landowner, who was trying to stock a pond, I would definitely 100% tell them, do not put crappy in a pond. I mean, that was my take-home message when I worked in the district. And it all comes down to their ability to reproduce in very large numbers, which we've covered on the podcast before. They just really can out-reproduce the effort you can give to them to harvest them out. And so basically, they stunt out the pond. They consume... A lot of your resources that would be going to other fish like bass or to your bluegills. And so you end up with just a bunch of three, four, five inch crappie in a pond. All your brim fry. Yeah, oh, yeah. All your bass fry. Yeah, they're crushing your recruitment on your young of the year of all the other species you have. But 
I have somebody say, hey, man, I can catch just huge crappie out of a pond. Yep, you're right. Congratulations. You're John, you've got crappie in one of your ponds, right? Yeah, they're in the big pond, which is a little different. It's bigger and it's flow through. So you got current going through it all the time. It's almost like a, an embayment of a creek. It's a very yeah. natural oh, setting kind of thing. And that's and, a little different. And Corey's right. There's somebody right now who's listening to oh, us. Oh, yeah. He's, saying, a, he's a liar. <laughs> there's a pond down the street that's got mm-hmm. crappy in it, and we catch three pounders out of it. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. And the exception to that rule, and it's almost the exception without fail, is a very old pond, like a beaver pond, yep. just a like an embayment on a creek, just a something that's got a fairly amount of flow, but it's old as Methuselah. It's got chain pickerel in it. It's got a whole host of different species. And that's kind of what John has. I would say that pond's probably the oldest one on your property. It is. You're exactly right. I think that's exactly what's going on there because there's so many predators in there. There's a pickerel, which is an apex predator. Right. There's bass. Those bass we caught today were the size where they're just eating machines, right? You know, they're cruising around trying to eat all the time. There's channel catfish in there. There's bluegill, crappy. But I think they tend to be bigger bluegill, and I think that there's so many predators there, they just eat everything that's little. So a little crappy gets snacked on. But So it's not really what we as fisheries biologists would call a balanced pond, but it's like a wild just yeah. pond. Yeah. And those can have some crappy, and sometimes they can have very good crappy populations in them. So to me, that has been the one exception to crappy, and you cannot make that happen. Like no. You can't say, I'm going to make this situation occur. No. It's like it's just probably the pond has to be at least 50 years old and it starts to find its own place in the world, you know? And, you know, I would tell somebody if they're listening and they go, oh, my pond is exactly what Corey described of... Still don't stop crappy. Two to three inch crappies. No, the two to three inch crappies, the other situation, I'd tell them to drain the stupid thing and start over. I mean, there's really no fixing that without just a complete overhaul of the system. There's been a little bit of work on stocking predators, but the jury's really still out. The jury's out on it. I mean, there's maybe some options on predators, but really and truly, once crappy have taken hold and have gotten to a point where you're basically got three to five inch crappy and that's all you ever see, and you really don't see anything else, maybe there's a one eight incher every once in a while, that's hard to overcome because there's so many of them they're basically spawning at three inches and they're just so prolific. You just can't get rid of them. And so my suggestion is pull the standpipe on that thing and let's start over. There's one other thing we don't need to put in a pond and that is a flathead catfish. If you have a three acre pond and you put a flathead catfish in it in three years and you drain it, you will have no fish and a 60 pound flathead catfish in the bottom of your pond. Yep. They will eat everything yep. with impunity. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest flatheads. I wouldn't suggest blue cats. You know, a lot of people will go out to the lake or to the river and catch, you know, these really large apex predator catfish and bring them back to their pond and put them in there. And they'll just wreak havoc in your own pond. Not to mention, we really would like for you not to move those species around. Right. So we've talked about the don'ts for a minute now. Let's talk about the do's. John, you got feeders on your ponds. What do you think about fish feeders? I think it's the best bang for your buck that you can get, really. And if you want, like, really fast results, it concentrates the fish. Fish by the fish feeder, you're probably going to be more successful fishing away from the fish feeder. So we use them to feed the the basis for the pond, the bluegill, and we let the bluegill be the prey for the bass. So we're creating the food chain. Some of the ponds have that plankton bloom, 
which we intentionally try to get that in the ponds, but you can't get it in the ponds that have tremendous water flow here. The water's so acidic in the sand hills. So we try to get the plankton blue going. I like to feed. I like to use the fish feeders because if I'm busy and I can't feed by hand, I know that that's going to happen. But it's also expensive. And you know you have a pond problem when you start buying fish chow by the pallet. Mm-hmm. Yes. The first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. I've got a problem. I'm there. <laughs> I absolutely have a problem. Pond addict. Yeah. And that'd be a good t-shirt, a pond addict. There you go. But, you know, I don't put feeders on all the ponds just because of the cost. And plus, they're different. It sort of changes the personality. of the And ponds have personalities. Like your kids, you have uh, plans for them, and you want them to do certain things. But when they grow up, they're going to be what they're going to be. And your ponds are the same way. You know, you can plan on it being a big bluegill pond. But at some point, that pond decides what it's going to be. And unless you're willing to poison it and start over, which is hard for me to do because you've got all that energy and all those resources in there. And you do all this effort to try to grow fish, and then you got to kill them, start over. That's a traumatic thing for me. Sure. Oh, yeah. So you just kind of go, I mean, like I said earlier, my mistake was I had a big bass pond. That's a pretty good mistake when I'm trying to have a big bluegill pond. That's not a bad runner-up price. Yeah, I mean... I agree. That's just horrible to have big bass in the pond. I tell people right regular that if they have nine and 10 pound bass in their pond and they're not happy, that they can call me and I will fish their pond for them. Yeah. So, yes. Well, you know, the state record uh, bass was caught in a farm pond. Right. It's a pretty old record. Like I told you earlier, my theory is every farm pond I've ever fished seems like it has one big bass in it. It has one dominant bass. It gets the best habitat, runs all the other fish off, and they do really well. So you've mentioned Lyman a couple of times, and some people may not understand what we're talking about when it comes to that. Talk a little bit about Lyman, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, one thing I've learned is you don't need to worry about spreading it around the pond. Somebody told me that if you just have a truck come up, just dump it in, and it'll buffer the water. And that does seem to be true. Just like agricultural fields, you don't have to lime that often. I take pH tests. Now, you have to take a pH of the pond bottom, the soil in the bottom of the pond, or at least the surrounding land. Yeah, so I test the water. I don't test the bottom. You mean you take a test of the bottom before you lime it or after yep. you lime it? Before, when you dig your pond, what yep. I recommend folks do is they actually get soil from the bottom of the pond or what would be yep. the bottom gotcha. of the pond. And then send it off for a test just like you would if you were doing an ag field? Or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've done that. Well, yeah. I planted my orchard. We did that. Right. And we were testing for other things, too. But with all these pine needles here, everything's a setup. You can assume here that you yeah. just you can, about you can lime four it. to six tons per acre, no matter what. Yeah. And it lasts a long time. I yeah. mean, probably lime every five, six, seven, eight years. That's about right. I mean, you know, it's not a something you have to do every year. But I don't know how beneficial fertilization would be if you don't have the right pH, really. It would take a lot more fertilizer to get probably less than the same results. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the cheapest thing I do as far as getting a lot of bang for the buck health of the pond. And so when we talk about fertilizing the pond, that's something that a lot of our listeners probably haven't ever heard about. When I was working in Alabama, it was a lot more common that people were fertilizing their ponds. And really, in general, it's no different than fertilizing your rose garden or your cornfield. All you're really trying to do is increase the productivity of the water. And just so you know, a fertilized pond, if you had a one-acre fertilized pond, 
it would have about twice the amount of fish in it than an unfertilized pond, give or take, roughly. So really, the reason why we fertilize is to really kind of, we're trying to push Mother Nature to try to get the best growth rates we can. We're trying to increase primary production, which is the phytoplankton, the algae in the water, that kind of green color that comes to the water. The zooplankton, which are little bitty animals that live in the water, eat the phytoplankton. The little fish eat the zooplankton. The big fish eat the little fish. So if we increase the food at the bottom, we increase the size at the top. It felt like I was on Sesame Street there for just a second. You know, the phytoplankton eat the zooplankton. Anyway, well, sorry. Why did she swallow the spider? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) That's really why you do it. Now, you don't have to do any of the things we're talking about. I tell folks all the time, it's no different. Like, we manage the deer herd on my family land. But when I was a kid, we didn't. We shot whatever we wanted to when I was a kid, and we had fun. Now, the results are a little bit better, but the amount of fun we're having is about the same. So, it's just a choice that you have to do, and it depends on your goals for the pond. Like. You can throw some fish in, walk away, and fish it when you want to. That's totally fine, too. So the one thing I think about when I think of fertilizing is you have to be careful. In the northern Piedmont, where I was working, a lot of ponds really didn't need a whole lot of fertilizing. They had quite a bit of productivity in the ponds. Now, down here in the Sand Hills, if you don't fertilize, your water is going to be basically gin clear, and the fish aren't going to grow very well. And John knows this. He's seen it on his ponds. I walked to a pond one day, and this was actually in the Sand Hills. It was over in Lee County, which is in the northern part of the Sand Hills. And the guy said, I don't understand why my fish are all coming up to the surface sucking air, you know, kind of thing. The thing that we were talking about before, fish right. get right up at the surface to get the oxygen out of the air. And I walked down there, and his pond was the brightest green you have ever seen. I mean, it looked John like, Deere paint. It looked like John Deere paint. I was like, did you fertilize this? He's like, oh, yeah, I fertilized it. And then he commits to telling me how much liquid phosphorus he had put in the pond. And it was like a half acre pond. I was like, whoa, 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 that's way too much phosphorus. And so what it caused was an oxygen problem. The bloom got so big that it was it was eating his oxygen up at night. When the sun went down, his fish were dying because of it. So you have to be careful with fertilizing. It's got to be a balance. There's several different types of fertilizer. And instead of kind of running through all that here, what I would recommend you do is you call one of us or you call your biologist and you say, listen, I'm interested in fertilizing my pond. I'd like for you to help me decide what my fertilizing regime needs to be. Then you can do it because there's a lot to fertilizing a pond. And really, my advice is if you're working on a pond or really any property in general, you need to spend at least one more day a year fishing it than you do working on it. If all you're doing is working and you're not enjoying it, you probably need to tone back on what you're doing. Yeah. You know? So one more thing, structure. Let's talk about structure for a minute, Corey. Do fish like structure? Fish like structure. They like to hide. They like to feed around it. They like to do everything around structure. I mean, we spend tons and tons of money every year in reservoirs providing structure for fish. One, it congregates them. That's one thing. So it's the chicken or the egg kind of argument. Is it providing cover where anglers can go catch them, or is it providing cover because they want to utilize it? And I would say it's both. Some fish use it to spawn around, depending on what kind of structure it is. Some fish use to feed around. Bass in particular love to feed around structure, and crappy do too, because the little fish will get around the structure because they like it as a hiding place. 
and then the bass and the crappie will just kind of hang off of that structure. And then when the little fish make the mistake of coming out a little too far away, basically bass and crappie are kind of ambush predators and they just, they'll pounce on it. And so there's all kinds of structures you can get. You can use natural structure. You can use bamboo and cane and some people use old Christmas trees, but a lot of those natural structures, you're going to have to refresh them. They're going to decay over a period of time. Some decay faster. The cane piles last quite a while, but you know, like your evergreen trees, they basically last about two years and you'll probably be needing to put them back out. Or you can go into the manufactured structures where there's these artificial structures that are made out of PVC. They'll last a long time. As long as they don't collapse, they'll last quite a bit. And once the artificial structure gets what we call paraphyton on it and gets some good growth on the structure itself and the fish kind of take to it, which doesn't take very long in a fertilized situation, it doesn't take long at all, those structures will last quite a long time and we'll produce fish off of them. We have lots and lots of sonar images of structures that where we've done work and research on structures of what works and what doesn't. And my take home to people is if you build it, it's kind of like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they'll come they'll pretty much utilize it. They'll utilize anything that they can hide or feed off of. If a pond is irregular shaped or if a pond has crooks and crannies and that kind of thing, I mean, structures are always important, but it's not as important. Where I've found structure to be the absolute most important is when you have a pond that's shaped like a bowl. Yeah, when it's a bathtub. And it has nothing on the shoreline. That's exactly right. It's clean. It looks great. But from a fish standpoint, it's like, what do I do? It's hard to exist as a brim. At that point, the bass actually have a huge advantage and over. It, and it's also harder to manage your pond when it's like that because you'll be looking around going, okay, I got a bunch, well, not a bunch, but I have 20 bluegill that weigh two pounds, but then I don't have any other bluegill in the pond. And it's because the bass are just, and the bass are growing pretty good, but then the bass are going to stop growing too because there's no reproduction in the right. pond because they've eaten, themselves they've, out. they've eaten themselves out of what they have. So structure is very important. Yeah, if it's a bathtub, it's a great point, Ben. If it's a bathtub, you're going to have to do something. Some so, of the ponds that I've checked over the years that had some chronic issues that were hard to get a handle of, at, in the end, it was it was a structure. They needed structure to fix the problem. Yeah, so the old bluegill pond that hasn't overpopulated, I intentionally have no structure whatsoever in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's as smooth as a bathtub in the bottom. And my thinking was that, you know, bluegill eat a lot of bluegill. So I think the bigger bluegill are feeding on the fry because that's what's in there. They got to eat something. They got to eat, right, exactly. And since there's no structure, those smaller fish can't hide till they get to the size where they can't be consumed by a bluegill. So I think that's what's going on there. But um, we might need to go fish up for y'all leave today. <laughs> that's probably the best. But, it, you know, bluegills. when you said that about your pond, that there were no predators in it, but it was a very large bluegill, I'm like, Man, that's a weird situation. That hardly ever happens. Usually yeah. what'll end up happening is you one, a predator will get in there just by chance and it'll start consuming fish. But generally what you end up with is two to three inch bluegill because they just keep reproducing and overpopulating. Those two to three inch bluegill eat themselves out of house and home. Yeah, they'll yeah. eat themselves no, out of house. Nice bluegill. But the good news about that is the worst case scenario for you is that that will turn into a big bass pond. Because you can stock bass in there. Right. And if it does stun out, you can stock bass on top of that, and the bass will... will yeah. So I don't think I'll ever do all-female bass. So the crazy thing about all-female bass is we've used the analogy Jurassic Park several times. Is It seems like no matter what, 
nature finds a way. And so when you go the all-female bass route, all it takes is one male bass. And it's over. And now you have reproduction in your pond, and you don't have that control that you did have. But getting back to your all-rim pond, as far as a problem to have, a forage-dense pond, Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work itself out, and I'll be interested like in the next two to three years to see what direction that pond goes. But if it does go stunted brim anyway, or brim crowded as we might call it, well, then you have an opportunity to put some bass in there and get fantastic bass growth rates. So again, and if that doesn't suit you, I'll come fish your Still not a bad runner-up prize, right? Right, exactly. So the one thing that I want to talk about, and I talk to folks about this all the time, and if you're not going to do any of these things, Harvest is a very important thing for me. It's critical. I'm not really as worried about brim harvest, unless you're in a situation where you have all brim, because then you're acting as the predator yourself. But in a typical bass brim situation, I'm more interested in your bass harvest, and I'm more interested in how that's done. Because if you can keep your bass population healthy, the bass will take care of the brim for you, really. And what you're really wanting is everybody's fished a pond in the middle of a cow pasture somewhere that had a bunch of 12-inch bass, and that was it. And basically, that's a stunted-out bass population that's never had any harvest. Those bass could be anywhere between one and nine years old, and they're all yep. the same length. And they're long. They're kind of snaky-looking. and Big head, big eyes. Right. Skinny body. Yeah. And they're starving to death is what they are. Yep, you know? they are. And there can be fun. Because there are a lot of eager... Oh, yeah. There's a lot of mouths to feed down there. And they'll be crushing baits usually. Yeah, hit whatever you throw in there because they've eaten everything else in the lake. But that's all you'll get. But you're not going to catch a 10-pound bass out of there most times. Except for maybe there's, like you said earlier... There'll be one. There's one that kind of outgrew and it started eating the stunted bass. But really, when we're talking about managing for the pond, what I'd like to see most folks do in a private pond... If you're not fertilizing the pond, probably 15 to 20 pounds per acre per year. So that doesn't mean this weekend we're gathering all my friends and we're going to hit the quota in eight hours. It's space it out over time. You can cause a disjunct if you do pull out a significant poundage all at once between your brim. And it's also important to leave the big bass in your pond and pull out the smaller fish, you know, the fish that are kind of think about them as weeds. They don't have the traits you want anyway. So pull some of them out and leave the larger. So, you know, a lot of times pulling out those smaller bass, if it's private waters and it's legal to harvest those smaller bass, a lot of times filling up a five-gallon bucket full of pickle bass doesn't get you your poundage, but it's doing a lot as far as reducing a year class and, and putting fish in the pond to grow. If you're fertilizing the pond, about twice that, so about 30 pounds per acre. If you look it up on the brim front, the brim is going to say on an unfertilized pond, no more than 75 pounds per acre. On a fertilized pond, it's about 130, 140 pounds per acre. Really, that's a lot of brim. That's a lot of brim. That's a lot of brim. And so what I do is I recommend that to be the bass harvest is more of a goal. Yeah. The brim harvest is more of a do not exceed. Yeah, kind of guy. I would agree. Is how I for sure thought about that because you don't need to feel compelled that well. If I don't harvest a seventy-five pounds of brim per acre, we're not doing a good job. But it's a 
if you are harvesting that many brim, just make sure you don't exceed that. And what I tell folks to do is go to Walmart, buy a cheap scale, cheap notebook, a cheap pencil, and keep put, records of it. Put it in a mailbox because what happens, and John, I know you're not like this, but Corey is. <laughs> I'm going to wait to hear what you say first. <laughs> he goes fishing and he catches, says he catches five bass, but he actually caught four. And he says that they weighed three pounds a piece, and they actually weighed a pound and a half a piece. And if he's not actually weighing his fish, he could be think that we're done with harvest when he's not even halfway there yet. So the scales keep you honest. So you're calling me a liar. I like that. Well, so you're a fisherman. Yes. Well, so you're a fisherman. You're a liar. Well, it's easy to look. And here's where the problem is, especially in a stunted bass population. It's easy to look at a 12, 13, 14-inch bass and say, oh, it's about a pound. Yep. Again, we talked about a minute ago, how about that they were as long and skinny? If you actually weigh that fish, he's a half a pound. Yep. Maybe not even that much. So sometimes even your own estimation isn't really the best way to go. And that's why cheap hanging scale in a bucket, just weigh them. And it's easy. Keeps everybody on time. And the other thing it can do is if you keep records over time and you give it to your biologist, your biologist can look at that data and say, well, yeah, you're right. Your average weight has gone down about a half a pound over the yep. past five years. Sums up. They're going to have some questions about yep. what possibly might be leading to that. So it could That's be right. good data to help your biologist diagnose what's going on. But really harvest, I mean, if you have ponds, because there's a surplus of bass that are produced every year, and they need to be cropped off and cropped back. A, a pond is not a cornucopia that you can just get from. I mean, there's only a certain amount of production that it can support. And without cropping those bass off, you either get numbers or you get pounds. You, you get the same number of pounds no matter what. You decide yep. how many miles occupy that pound. Yeah, there's a top maximum amount of fish pounds that that pond can grow. Right. And it depends on what you do harvest-wise and how they reproduce. And there's a lot of factors, but that'll depend on what size your fish get to become. It's the difference in having like 50 cows in a cow pasture and yep. one really fat We've cow. talked about that here on the podcast so many times. I, if there's one, well, there's a lot of lessons I hope anglers get because I have to listen to myself sometimes because I have to take the same message home to myself. But you can't have, particularly in a pond, you can't have more and bigger. It just does not work. You have to thin the herd if you want to get bigger. That's right. And you know, the thing about the scale is I've got hanging scales and I calibrate them. You know, you'll talk to guys that uh, say I caught a 10-pound bass. And go, oh, where'd you weigh him? I said, well, I hand weighed him where he lifted him up to say he's 10 pounds. But I was at the feed store back during the summer and I, I was walking out and a guy came in with two little boys and he said, my son just caught a 10-pound bass. Might be a state record. Might be bigger than that. Do you have a certified scale? I weigh them on, state certified scale. Got a feed store, said, sure, bring them on in. So I, I immediately stop because if there's a 10-pound oh, yeah. bass, yeah. I want to see it. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. So uh, he brings them in, they have them in a tub, and they go about to weigh them. And it was a great bass, a little over six pounds, because most people have never seen 10-pound bass. Most people have not seen a one-pound bluegill, and they don't really know what that is. And if you're your hand weighing it where you're estimating, you really don't know what you've got. Right. It's easy to get excited and think yeah. a fish is bigger than it. I mean, I've done it. 
I'm saying it out of experience, not out oh, of... Yeah. It's yeah. not out of judgment. It's out of what we've done ourselves. Right. Worst thing that father did was weigh that fish. If he had thrown him back, his son could have told everybody to call 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, it helps us because if the prescription is 15 pounds per acre, eight pounds per acre is not 15 pounds per acre. Mm. So that's why I recommend folks do that is to make sure that they're hitting the marks that they need to hit for their goals for the year. So... We get a lot of questions, Ben, when it comes to pond management. I mean, our biologists across the state commonly get all kinds of questions. I've had them range in a lot of different directions. Like you said, some people don't care a thing about fish, and it's all about water quality. Some people care a lot about fish and want to know every little detail, like what we've talked about today on the podcast. So in your mind, what are some of the common questions we get from landowners when they call about their pond? So what do you run into? So one of the questions I always get is, is my water healthy or is my water good? And to be honest, there is no good or bad test for water. I hadn't seen that machine yet. Right. Yeah. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. In all reality, if you're seeing fish, turtles, snakes, lizards, frogs, yeah. then you have, your water is fine and healthy. I really don't recommend people sending water samples off to get a broad-spectrum test. One, because it's expensive. And two, if you're not looking for something specific, then you don't know what to tell the lab in question to look for. So what I would say is to answer the question, is my water healthy, you have to look at it and say, is it supporting life? Because if it's supporting life, then the water's healthy. Yeah, could it be better one way or the other? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But healthy is a very ambiguous term. But Mm -hmm. if it's supporting life, then it's probably healthy. And the same thing I get is, are my fish healthy? Again, are they growing? Are they reproducing? Unhealthy fish population has fish that are all the same size. Yeah. And a lot of people think when we talk to them about fish health, They think diseases. That's the first thing that pops in their mind. And that's not really us as fish managers. We're really not talking about that. We're talking about, is it balanced? Are the fish that we're seeing of a healthy weight? We can kind of look at a fish. Bass is a really good, you can look at a bluegill too, but a bass is a really good example. And we've talked about that today. If all of the fish that come out of your pond are 12 to 15 inches and they all weigh three quarters of a pound to a pound and a half, you're not in a healthy situation when it comes to your bass population. You should have five-pound bass, yep. and you should have five-inch right. bass. That's right. Yeah. And the same thing goes for your brim population, too. If to have a healthy population, you should see a full spectrum of sizes. And I think when I see that, I think this is a pond that's going to give sustainable fishing opportunities for years. Yep. So, yeah. So, a lot of questions, and we've kind of answered this today, but one of the questions I always would get is, I never have big fish in my pond. I don't know where my big fish are. Or they'll say, which is a little bit different question, they'll say, where did my big fish go? Right. You know, I had big fish. Now I don't have big fish. We were fish. catching them a month ago. We were, we were catching now I can't. And now I can't. So let's answer that question because we've kind of answered if you don't have any big fish. Let's answer that question, Ben. What would you say to somebody that called you up and said, a month ago, two months ago, I was catching big fish and now I can't catch big fish? Well, you have to understand that fish behavior changes over time. And especially in the heat of the summertime, those fish are stressed. You know, the water temperatures in a pond in August. 90 plus degrees. 
from top to bottom. Yes, sometimes. absolutely. And so these fish are stressed out. They don't eat as much when they're stressed out. They're going to be on the bottom of the pond or in the coolest water they can find. They're just trying to maintain until they can't anymore. And maybe they get more active right at dusky dark, something like that. But during the heat of the day, they're not going to bite. You have to understand what these fish are doing and follow their movement patterns and what they're feeding on to understand what they're doing. And so you can understand how to target it. The other thing is, if you don't think you have any big fish in your pond, the best way to answer that question is to take a bluegill, put it on a hook, put it about five foot deep and toss it out there in the middle and wait. Yep. You'll be amazed what you might see when mm-hmm. you do that. And I would also tell people, not when they call and they say, we caught them a month ago and they're gone, but there will be people that call and say, two years ago, my pond was, you know, I was catching big bass. And what they mean by big bass is five pounds plus. Now I don't see that anymore. You know, I'm not catching those fish. The first question I'd ask them is, are you fishing it fairly regularly so that you would kind of get a grasp of whether those fish are actually there or not? But fish do age out. Fish do die just like we die. They're going to age out of the system. And so if your reproduction is bad in your pond, something's changed where your bass are not recruiting into the system and you've had these big, this one-year class or two-year classes of bass that were big going through your pond, eventually they're going to age out. And if you don't have, you know, something's happened and you're not getting reproduction, those bass will disappear over time. But it won't be the one-month or two-month thing. And a lot of times, especially if your pond's on a hunting camp or something and you're only there during certain times of the year, once a month, there may have been a fish kill that you missed Never saw. completely. That's right. If you didn't live right near that pond, right, that had the fish kill, you might not have known. Months that later, fish I never would have known about it. You would have never known about it. That's right. You so, would be saying, where did my big fish go? Exactly. So, <laughs> the thing that fish kill taught me was we carted off a thousand fish from that pond. So whenever I was out there fishing and I wasn't catching anything, you're not even getting a bite, there were a lot of fish looking at my lure. You know, they were looking at it. They just didn't want it. Oh, yeah. Probably every time I threw out there, some fish was looking at it. And it's probably bite it. probably shameful how many times I fished where fish were looking at my lure. Oh, yeah. 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 I would say every time you fish, fish are looking <laughs> at your lure. They just don't want to bite it. You call fair number of fish today. Yeah. Yes, but there was probably more that looked that didn't. Yeah, that's yeah. what I meant by that yeah. was we caught fish today, but there was probably a bunch of times where it just went right by a fish. Absolutely. All right. Any other questions you want to cover about pond management? We could probably have five-part series on pond management. We just barely scratched Yeah, we the have surface. scratched the surface today. You know, we didn't talk about, and I guess we could briefly talk about, does my pond need an aerator? Yeah, let's talk about that because a lot of people ask that question as well. That's kind of a common question. Well, we kind of hinted around at it earlier yeah. in the fact that, one, if you have a chronic problem with fish kills, then you may want an aerator. The other side of that is a smaller pond, you know, half acre or less. Sometimes it's a good idea to have an aerator. If you have a really big pond, seven to 10 acres. You're probably wasting your time. It won't have a benefit except in a very specific area. of the Very localized. Yeah, that's right. And normally there's enough wind and wave action and water moving around in a larger pond that you really don't need it anyway. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, aerator one and a half. Yeah. One of the questions I used to get all the time because we have a lot of invasive weeds in North Carolina that get in our ponds is what do I do about weeds and weed control? And it really depends on the weed, on the aquatic plant that's in the water. Some aquatic plants are very beneficial to your fish and it provides habitats, what it does. And a lot of fish are very, very much oriented to being around that kind of structure, weeds and such. 
like today, we were out fishing a few of your ponds, and some of your ponds have weeds, some of them don't. You had, I saw Brasenia, which is water shield, which is a little small floating leaf. And then I saw some white water lily, which is another great floating leaf. Which are kind of nice. Oh, yeah, they're nice. They're nice to look at. And honestly, they're great habitat. And I've caught a ton of fish. I've caught a ton of bass around off of water lilies. You know, so they're great. Where things get into trouble is some of these submerged aquatic vegetation like hydrilla get in your pond or elodea gets in your pond and it can take over pretty quick and you'll get it choked out and you can't fish it. I mean, basically it's weeds from top to bottom and from front to back. And that's the call we get is like, I don't know what to do. My suggestion is to call us. We would be able to advise you. We'd probably look at that pond and figure out how big it is and what the actual weed is. That's the most important thing probably right there off the bat is you got to know what weed you have. The best thing you can do is take Really good pictures of it yep. and email it to your biologist. Yep. You can email it to me. You can email it to yep. us. It'll be yep. fine. We'll look That's at right. it. We'll look at it. But when he says take really good pictures of it, that doesn't mean take a picture of the pond with the weed in the water. You got to get the weed out of the water, get up close and personal to the weed with the camera. Have a photo shoot. Ha- have a photo shoot with, with, the with the weed and then send us the photo shoot. A lot of times I'll say, hey, send me a picture of that weed and I'll try to get it identified for you and I'll get the pond. And I'm like, hmm, well, I really don't know what to tell you because all I see is water. I mean, sometimes that can help, but yeah, you're going to need some up-close pictures. You got to have up-close pictures. But once we get that done, you know, and get the weed identified, because not everything is the same and handling weeds can be different based on what species it is, we can give you a pretty good idea how to get that under control. And there's certain things that grass cart will and won't eat. There's certain things that herbicides will work for and other things that other herbicides won't work for. And the take-home message is we don't want you to waste money. Exactly. If you spend money on grass carp and grass carp won't touch it, then you've just wasted a significant amount of money and vice versa with with chemicals as well. Yeah, so one thing that's really aggravating is philomonas algae. Mm -hmm. I don't have any here by fish ponds with that. What's a good way to treat that? Copper. Copper. Something that's copper-based. Copper-based. And there's some great chelated coppers now because copper is toxic to fish as well. But some of the chelated coppers are buffered so they they have, you minimize the risk. And carp won't touch that stuff, will it? No. Yeah. I mean, if it's all that's in the pond and you have grass carp in there, they might work on it some, but they're not going to get a control over it. And so I brought that up to just the plant thing is because it is very complex. We could talk about plants and ponds for podcasts upon podcasts upon podcasts. Absolutely. And so the real take-home is is contact us at the Wildlife Commission. Contact your local district biologist or contact Ben and I at twoballbiologists at ncwildlife.org. And we'll try to get that handled for you because I know that's a constant problem throughout the state. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've talked a lot about pond management today. We've kind of hit the highlights, and we didn't get too far down in the weeds, I hope. I've really enjoyed it. John, you got anything else to say about about the Wildlife Commission or about pond management or about anything? We're all ears. Earlier, you talked about how commissioners are, are passionate. Everybody's passionate about wildlife. Every call I get or email I get from anybody in North Carolina has a concern about wildlife. They love it, and they're passionate about it. One thing I do want to mention And it's not just because you guys are sitting here today, but at our uh, last Wildlife Commission meeting, Commission won another award. Is it the American Sport Fish Society? No, it's the American Fisheries Society. American Fisheries Society. 
And the reason I remembered that was I recognized the lady when she walked in the room because she was here about six months ago giving you an award. And that one was delayed presentation because of COVID. That's correct. But these are national awards. And this one was on uh, whirling disease and brook trout. Yep. So we did a study on better understanding whirling disease and brook trout, which is a disease that affects basically trout in our cold water streams in the mountains. And we did a project with Auburn University studying basically the processes and the genetics of whirling disease and trying to understand. And what we've really found is that whirling disease is pretty common in a lot of our waters, in our cold waters. We now understand a lot more about the processes through that project. And that was a project that our good friend, Jake Rash, who you've heard on podcasts in the past, worked with a professor down at Auburn to learn more about that. And the award six months ago, wasn't that a Bodie Bass project? Am I remembering that correctly? No, the award was another brook trout project. It was on understanding the genetics of brook trout in the southern Appalachians, and that was another Jake Rash project. Gotcha. Six months prior to that, we did win an award on our hybrid brass study at Lake Norman. Yep. So yeah, about, which is Bodie Bass, yeah. So about every six months, fisheries biologists from Wildlife Commission won some <laughs> national award. So, yeah, because they give them out annually, and it, COVID has really thrown a wrench in how they give them out. But, yeah, I think that was the, we won the 2019, 2020, and the 2022 American Fishery Society Award for so, doing research. So the Wildlife Commissions, as organizations, got some pretty amazing employees. Wildlife enforcement officers, wildlife biologists, the educators, the administrators. They're all just very dedicated, wonderful people. You know, it's the fisheries biologists that are winning an award every six months, national award. Well, that's what Christian we think, waters. too. They're pretty amazing. They're pretty and Corey amazing. and I really enjoy working with those amazing ones. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I don't want to throw all our other employees under a bus, but we do like the fish division for sure. Yeah, I mean, when you start recognizing the presenter because she was just there six months ago giving an award, that's, yeah. Pretty good track record. Yeah, that is a good track record. We have great biologists and great coworkers across the state. And like you said, they're all very passionate about what they do. And they all care about our wildlife and our fish and hunting and fishing and trapping and and just wildlife viewing. And so, yeah, appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to close up today with some listener questions. And the first one is from Mr. James. And he fishes the Tar River. And his broom fishing has fallen aside to the side. He used to be able to catch a lot. He suspects that it's the striped bass because they're staying in the river more than they used to. But his real question is, what happened to the brim and the tarps? <laughs> okay, so first of all, there's a multi-layers to this. There is. There's a lot. So the striped bass are not doing so well in the tar river that they can wipe out the sunfish population. And, I would and, agree with that. In fact, Striped bass, as a general rule, they eat some sunfish, but they're more interested in shad-type preys as a general rule. So while they're happy to eat a brim, if it's, I mean, I'll eat, you know, if you wave a hot dog in front of my face long enough, I'm going to eat it, you know. I'd rather have a hamburger. True that. However, what what likely is the culprit of the brim population subsiding could be that flatheads are becoming a much more prominent predator in the Tar River. And we all know that as flatheads are introduced, the redbreast sunfish get is one of the first sunfish that gets hit first, and then they eat the other brim. And so that could be a reason why he's not seeing as many brim in the Tar River. However, we've done some surveys in the Tar River recently, 
And to be honest, I hate that he's not catching as many brim as he used to, but the brim populations are pretty robust in Tar River still. So maybe he just needs to move around a little bit more, try some areas he hasn't gotten to. The Tar River is also very flashy. So at some water levels, there may be a lot of fish, and at other water levels in the exact same spot, there may not be as many. Yeah, of our coastal rivers, it's the flashiest one we have. It goes up and up and down and down. Yep, you can walk across it most of the time. But I can tell you, we were shocking right there in downtown Tarboro, right on that park. Mm -hmm. And not too terribly long ago, and that's where I coined the term brimnasium, because there were so many brim on that stretch. And he may or may not have you fished You can put that, that on a t-shirt, brimnasium? Come to the brimnasium. <laughs> Maybe the town of Tarboro needs to make a t-shirt. Yeah. Tarboro. Have a festival, the brimnasium festival. I like it. I like it. <laughs> But yeah, so good luck. Keep moving around. There's brim out there to be had, and I hope you find them. So our next one, Mr. Willie, he sent an email, and his questions are, are grub worms good to fish with? John, you want to fill this one? Grub worm, you mean uh, maggots? Yes. Or the ones you dig up, the white ones with the black heads? You know, they're, they're great to fish with, yeah. particularly for bluegill. So I had some fish food once that got wet got molded and the flies got in there mm -hmm. and it was full of maggots and that's like candy to blue they it's like them. that's a bonus when i found the maggots in there so when i used to dig worms with my granddaddy to go fish the pond mm -hmm. we're coming full circle on this one finding that old grub worm was like the diamond it was the diamond in the rough so, i can remember as a kid digging worms in the edge of my parents yard to go fishing the next day and you'd get around the the old rotten stump or something like that, and it'd be full of grubs, man. That was like, oh, yeah, that's going to be perfect. So I grew up on my grandfather's farm, and for him, it was Catawba worms. Oh, yeah. And I can't find a Catawba tree. If you know, you, you know, hook me up with a Catawba tree, I'd appreciate it. You know, you can catch a lot of fish on one Catawba. Mm -hmm. You know, they're good for yeah, my They kind of got a thick skin. Yeah. Yeah, my yeah. dad would actually cut the end of it off and take a matchstick. I've seen and push that. the worm inside out and then hook it and mm -hmm. I've seen that. a catapa worm and, and do it that way. And yeah, they were really good at catching fish for sure. So yes, Mr. Willie, if you have a grub worm hole use and you want to go fishing, you should use it for sure. Yep. I like that question. I do too. Red ears, I love them. That's a fisherman there. That's right. Okay. We get this question a lot, and we've probably already answered it once before, but I figure we go again. Does water temperature affect crappy movement? Yes. Water temperature affects every fish's movement. That's, That's true. I'm sorry. That was the basic stone-faced response. I apologize for that. It really depends on the species, but talking about crappy, they're really active. You know, they move a lot more when the water cools as you get into fall, as we're in the fall now. As you approach winter, they'll slow their movement down a little bit, but they'll get bunched up in big groups during that period of time, and you can catch them pretty regularly during that time of year. And then when spring happens, they go to the banks eventually after they get through their pre-spawn. The summertime is different. It depends really on where you are. The rivers are different than the reservoirs. The reservoirs, they get really tight to structure. They really slow down their movements and I would say in the rivers are probably a little bit different than that. I don't yeah. know. What do you think, Ben? I think you're right. I think the times of the least movement is in the summer mm -hmm. and then the coldest, coldest, coldest part of winter. Yeah, coldest part of winter. The advantage of that is if you know where they go. They are grouped up They're going to be tight. Yes. 
it's during those transitional times in the spring when they're coming from wherever they were in the winter to yep. where they want to go to spawn. And then in the summer when they're coming off the spawn to wherever they're going to go in the heat of the summer, you know, understanding those movements and then getting in between those movements yep. is where you really can be very successful. But you can also be very successful in the heat of summer when they're tight to structure. The problem is, you is got nowhere to go. You literally might have to throw in about a foot spot and keep throwing in that same foot to foot spot over and over again because that's exactly where they're going to be and they're not going to come off of that. That's what makes them difficult in those dead of winter and dead of summer periods of time. Is it's not that they won't feed. It's just you've got to know exactly where they are and you got to be in the absolute almost right spot to catch them. Yeah. He also asked, is there a book you can get on crappy fishing? There are a million books Gazillions. on So you just go to Google, find somebody that's got a decent reputation as an angler who wrote a book or is like worked through a company that has a decent reputation of producing good stuff, somebody reputable. And if you don't want to do a book, there are tons of YouTube videos out there on oh, crappy and podcasts on crappy fishing. Crappy is one of the most popular sport fish in the country particularly in the Midwest and the Southeast, there are just a lot of people that fish for crappy. So there's a lot of really great information out there if you're willing to weed through. Some of it is not very good, in my opinion, but a lot of it is pretty good. Yeah, And you'll learn a lot. Especially when you're going through those types of sources. Normally, if you hear the same thing over and over again, you can pretty much hang your hat on it. Every once in a while, there's a kind of a red herring idea that has some clout to it. But a lot of those are just individual opinions, not really based on any science. Or At the end of the day, I mean, yeah, technology comes and new things happen and all that. But really in the fishing world, the things that worked 20, 30, 40 years ago still work today. Fish haven't changed all that much. We've changed, but the fish are, you know, their behaviors and all are fairly similar. Biology of fish does not change. No, here it does not. And that's really what this podcast is about, is trying to link those two things. Yeah. Well, this is our last podcast of the year, and I've thoroughly enjoyed. We've only done eight this year. We're going to do 12 next year. I've thoroughly enjoyed the podcast so far, and we really appreciate all of y'all listening. Um, Send in ideas about what you want to hear. We'd be all ears. We got some things planned for next year, some good things. If you send those ideas and questions in, I think they're talking about getting some swag for us, which I don't even know what that means. That's a term that I'm not particularly familiar with, but I think it's things we can hand out. Yeah. So that'll be fun. So by all means, send that in. And maybe if we put your question on air, we'll send you something back in the mail. Yeah. And I just want to one more time thank Commissioner Stone for being here with us today. Hawking Ponds. A lot of folks, when we're talking about our upper leadership, I mean, He's just a regular guy, just like the rest of us. All he wants to do is catch a bunch of fish, and I can totally appreciate that. He's been a great host. He's taken us around his land and shown us all his ponds. He's got several ponds, and we got to fish them and catch fish, and we literally put our hands on fish today, and my hands smell like fish right now, so it's been a great day. It's always a good day when your hands smell like fish. I've always said that. Yeah. No, it's been a blast. That is all I want is just catch some fish. That's right. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in the new year. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org.